Welcome to this week's Monday meeting. Today is June 17th, 2019. Monday meetings are a chance for motion designers all over the world to connect and ask questions, share inspiration, or hear presentations, and interact with industry-leading artists on an equal playing field. Today's guest is Noah Wall. Is that how you say your last name, Wall? Yeah. All right. <laughs> and Noah runs Handmade Creative out of uh, Montreal. Uh, we're super excited to have you on the show today. So thanks for joining us. A um, couple things before we get the meeting started. If you have any questions or comments, um, you can type question in the chat and we will monitor that and call on you if you have a microphone and would like to ask it live. If not, we can ask it for you. You can also raise your hand via the participant uh, button in Zoom and there's a little raise hand feature there and we can call on you for that. As usual, this call is recorded and we will post it. So if you have any concerns about something that was said that might be under NDA or you just want us to edit it out, let us know and we can take care of that before uh, posting it. Um, just wanna give another shout out to Camp MoGraph. We still have some tickets on sale. Uh, things are coming along really nice with that and we are getting uh, everything finalized with the workshops and the instructors and super hyped on what I'm hearing from the different instructors on how they want to teach these workshops. So I think it's going to be something that our industry really has not seen or heard before. So excited how that's coming along. Just want to give a shout out to the sponsors there too. Maxon, Otoy, School of Motion, Red Giant, Pixel Plow, and Insidium. Uh, we have our Discord server and our newsletter, so sign up for those if you haven't. And without further ado, I will introduce Noah. Uh, Noah, thank you so much for joining us this week. Um, and for those who don't know, maybe you could give us all a bit of a backstory and kind of intro to who you are and what your company does. Yes, for sure. <clears throat> So uh, for first item of backstory is, as I was saying, I'm, I'm fighting off the last of a daycare cold, so apologies in advance if there's any like coughing fits or anything. Um, so my name is Noah, and I'm the creative director of Handmade Creative, which is a studio I founded almost nine years ago now. Um, and since the start, we've kind of had a split personality in that we do about half video game trailers, and then about half... Um, animated commercials leading into motion design and sort of mography type videos a lot of times for advertising and related stuff. Um, <clears throat> and the, the genesis of the company was about, uh, I guess, 10 years ago, I was freelancing. Um, and as a freelance motion designer, but I also started to do a little bit of directing and it was quite small de-directing, like kind of turnkey projects for advertising agencies. Um, and I'd get a couple of freelancers um, helping me out. Um, and then I got a really great break, which was a chance to direct video game trailers for Electronic Arts. Um, that was a freelance gig, um, but it was, it was in-house there, and they hadn't done it in-house before, so it was a nine-month contract where I got to kind of build this little this little team, um, hire some people, spec out all our gear, buy it, and just sort of develop a pipeline uh, to do this. 
And when that project ended, um, I kind of had this idea of wanting to start my own company. And there were really kind of three reasons was, uh, one, I was around 30 then. And even at 30, I was noticing I was the oldest freelancer in the room on site a lot of times. So just this idea about like how to build longevity. Um, the other really big reason is I just loved working with that, that team. And because uh, we were all freelancers for electronic arts, when the project was done, everyone kind of, you know, scattered to the four winds. And I was like, I really love to kind of keep a team together and for us to be able to build and, and grow together. Um, and then I think just the last reason was Montreal is definitely a smaller market. There's certain kinds of stuff going on, but just I wanted to kind of really be in control of my own destiny and make sure I was uh, creating opportunities for myself uh, to direct. Um, so I had the idea to start the studio and then I was kind of waiting for my, for my chance. And a few months later, I was super lucky that another video game studio approached me with the same offer. They said, okay, like, could you, it was, I think, a 10-month contract uh, to direct a bunch of trailers for this campaign. And so I went to um, the, the person who had been my editor on the previous project. His name was Guinness Ryder. And shout out to him for being the, the number one employee. And I basically went to him and I said, what's the least amount of money I could pay you for one year where you could still support your family and could be willing to come work with me for this crazy idea I have for, for a company? Um, and so thankfully he took the leap of faith. And so I went back to the video game studio and I kind of pitched them on, this is what I want to do is, is do this project, but not as a freelancer for you, but through my, through my company. Um, and, and they also took a big leap of faith with some, some back and forth. They, they said yes. And basically handmade was born. And then, uh, <clears throat> And I'll say hello to Simon Reed, who just joined us, who along this, this, this winding tale was, was my business partner for, for a year of it. Um, and so, so then fast forward a couple of years later, uh, the company had grown. It started off in my house, like with, with two of us. And then we had an intern who became an employee and, and some freelancers to, to um, around the two year mark. Some days there were like six or seven people working in my house with like, four people in an office with my farting greyhound dog and then like a bunch of people around the dining room table and it really started to be time to uh to have an office uh so we got a real office um but there was there was a big pivot around that point which is um i made a decision that we wouldn't do what i call like um uh post-production studio work so, so meaning that if you just needed color correction done or you just needed an edit, that's not what we did. We were a creative studio. And so we were going to come in to a project at the concept stage, either doing art direction or, or like fully writing the script and directing it, but having some kind of major creative impact. Um, and it was probably just, just with like me checking back with that original mission of like creating opportunities for myself to direct. But, you know, it, it's a bit of a different landscape now, but back then too, like facilities were still important. So part of carving out that niche was like, 
giving ourselves a niche where we weren't competing based on facilities and just really defining what we did and what what we were about. Mm-hmm. Um, so so we went forward with that, and it was it was also just the time like the first two years was just like head down working, doing the projects, trying to find find clients, like really get the studio established. So that's really when we got our branding together, got a proper website. It was kind of, even though it was two years in, it was kind of like a launch in some respect. Fast forward a few more years later, uh, we brought on a full-time producer, um, still with our with our small team. Um, and, and a fun part of that story, and I, I think something that'll come up in uh, questions if we go there is that after a while of doing this a lot of the really cool parts about it are the the relationships with, with people and seeing people grow coming in and out of the company and not not just the project so the the first the first employee Guinness who came on as an editor at some point in that story he left because he wanted to pursue a career as a producer and we didn't have that opportunity at that point and then when I needed a producer I, I called him up and I said can you recommend someone? And he kind of said, well, you know what? I'm, I'm ready for a change. What if, what if I came back hmm. as, a, as a producer? Um, and so we did. And that was, that was very cool. Um, and, and that was still more like slow and steady growth. And then uh, Simon had been freelancing with us quite a lot. That's like a very senior 3D journalist. Uh, but really lots of hats, you know, art directory stuff. Um, and I think by that point, I probably tried to convince him to join the company a couple times as an employee, but he wasn't interested. But basically at that point, um, I was wearing too many hats with, with how we'd grown. I was, I was spread too thin. Um, I was looking for ways to kind of grow and, and have things uh, managed. So, um, I approached Simon to join as, as a partner, which, which he did. Um, and by that point, we still didn't have a huge like, core team, but the company was much bigger. <clears throat> we had outsourced a bunch of stuff. So, like, um, you know, accounting and bookkeeping was outsourced. Um, uh, even some, a lot of our HR and recruiting was outsourced. Um, and, and so it was just a much bigger, bigger thing. Um, and then uh, Simon was was partner for for a year. We were, we were going together, and that was a year where there were like a, a lot of changes. Um, some external, like the government, brought in uh, VFX subsidies. Um, so in Montreal, basically, like almost overnight, hiring became insanely insanely difficult. Um, and that was definitely an obstacle to our growth and just to have like sane hours because people became very uh, tough to find. <clears throat> and then on, on my side, I was, I was going to become a dad and also more and more as things grown, which is, this is like such a common story, but more and more of my job was becoming sales. And uh, that was not necessarily somewhere I wanted to, uh, to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, long story short, uh, Simon decided that, uh, I mean, he can speak to this too, but it was like running a company was just like too stressful, too much time away from, from family. And I was basically at a decision point where we'd had, like I 
didn't want to, there were issues with running it the way we had, like that structure was kind of feeling the growing pains with the recruiting uh, issues. We kind of had a slow quarter. So I was kind of at a decision point where I had to like double down on, on what we had or make a change. There wasn't really an option to kind of just like be in cruise control. And then the other thing that really struck me is as we've grown and done more, I don't know, like bigger, better projects, because we were a small team, we had always hired generalists, but more and more we were pushing generalists because we had to use the resources we had into roles where maybe they were not mm-hmm. comfortable. You know, like there's, there's, a, there's a point where it's cool to learn new skills, but there's also a point where like, there's maybe new skills that you're not so interested in and to have them like to figure them out under pressure, under deadline is, is not so cool. Right. Um, and so all these kind of factors were, were going around in, in my head. And because I looked back to my original mission of, of directing, um, I started to look at live action production companies where, you know, like they're pitching the idea that they think is best spot. Um, and then they're gathering the resources to make that commercial. And then it, it started to occur to me that why can't you do this this production model for, for animation, promotion design, for video game trailers, why, why, why couldn't it work? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, that was the big pivot. So a little less than two years ago, uh, we, we kind of stopped our traditional MoGraph studio model and pivoted to the production company model. Um, and so, so now I'm the only like, full-time employee it's all freelancers everything is kind of remote um a lot of times people kind of like get interested by that aspect the remote aspect which i kind of feel is like practical for some of the way we're doing stuff but but to me that's not what defines him doing things like it, it might it might not always be remote it might not always be all freelancers, but to me, the, the big pivot was actually to that production company model, which is what I'm very committed um, to sticking with. And so it's been, like I said, a little less than two years of that. Um, and it's, it's, proven, it's proven to work really well. I think the biggest test for me is we had one of our biggest live action shoots, which had a crew of like 15 people, which for me is pretty, pretty sizable. Um, with a whole bunch of animation projects going on in, in parallel. Um, and it, it all worked out. We had a freelance producer for the live action project and and everything worked. So after after that, I felt really confident like that this this could scale and, and this mm-hmm. was this was really viable. And so now where I'm at, I almost feel like after those first two years of handmade, where like the 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 two years since the pivot has been really head down working and like a, a little low key, just wanted to make sure that this was viable, this this could work. And now I'm in a phase of like just being super excited with it and kind of wanting to promote it a bit more and just look for more bigger, better, more more interesting projects. Right. You've now like proven that it works and now you can really go. Right. Yeah, yeah. And I, I got to give a big shout out. There's this guy named Hugo. I'm probably going to murder his last name. Hugo Guerra 
Gera. She has a, a thing called Hugo's Desk. Yeah. And and he's really in that space that we're in of doing video game trailers. And he kind of started this remote company with like a very small group of, of experienced people. So seeing him get confidence that it could it could work. Um, but I definitely wanted to to kick the tires and see like it could work for him, but could I pull it off? So that was definitely Mm-hmm. important for me to figure out nice well i thanks for that backstory i think there's already a bunch of questions popping up um which is great from the people joining the call today um i i don't know teddy do you have a mic uh i know you don't have a uh uh, camera uh, looks like not right now, but he put in something uh, a question in the chat just talking about um, the producer and was the producer worth it he 's heard mixed things you know if you can do a lot of the production yourself and whatnot and Simon actually jumped in to kind of answer a little bit of that uh, so i don 't know if both of you guys want to maybe talk a little bit about the producer and how that was bringing them on like was it worth it was it um was the juice worth the squeeze oh sure so i think simon's gotta take a call or something (laughs) so okay so um one so one theme that that kept repeating in, in my story of how i did things is i i only spent money on stuff when i when i needed to like that's like the, the office in the house, and like keeping the overhead low to kind of keep your runway long. But by the time we brought on a producer, 100% was needed because it really becomes that thing of like, when you're at your maximum capacity and you want to grow and do more stuff, what can you offer that someone else could do effectively? Mm-hmm. Um, and there was, just, there was just not enough hours in the day like for, for someone to do both jobs. So... Um, yeah, 100% it's worth it, but I think you need to have that volume to keep someone busy. Like, mm-hmm. um, and, and so just like we had had um, our motion designers were generalists, we definitely looked to hire producers that could. Um, I, I think in our studio, producer was like half probably what you would call a coordinator in another studio, half a producer. So they were doing like some marketing, some biz dev, and a lot of just day-to-day like mm-hmm. managing client relationships making sure we had assets keeping keeping the team on track so yeah yeah i wonder too uh just thinking about producers you know i i feel like you lucked out in a way having that video editor or the, the editor come back as a producer but you feel like when hiring a producer you know, you might have someone that's really good at project management and whatnot, but might not have the background of, you know, kind of being on the box and doing stuff. Like, do you think that's a big asset as a, as a producer um, to have that knowledge of like, you know, being able to really talk pipelines and workflows and really understand the process of it all? Mm-hmm. To some degree, but I don't think the on the box um, experience is, it's necessary. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, th- I think this is part of my, like what's particular to my story being in a smaller market. Like there was no one to hire who was like a motion graphics producer, like a video game trailers producer. So I had to look 
Um, like Guinness had been working in, uh, in reality t- TV, so it's still pretty different. Um, okay. And then eventually Guinness decided to move on, and we hired another producer who had been uh, working at a company that did like yeah. um, apps for music festivals. But, but I think, so that was Doreen, and I think like she's a great example of why it's, it's more important the person's like mindset and their, their basic skills and, and you can train them so like from working uh developing the apps she knew how to talk to different people in creative and technical fields and like assimilate that that information who had to keep a project on schedule translate technical and creative concerns to to a client and vice versa mm-hmm. um, i think if you're in a smaller market you're definitely going to have to think about training that person um, but I don't think you're going to find someone who's going to come in with every piece there. So it's just sure. they have enough pieces that you feel like you can send, fill in the, the missing ones. And I must admit, that has, was always my biggest struggle was training the producer because it's the one area where I had, I had no real experience prior to just like jumping in myself. I didn't really know what doing the job 100% legit as a producer looked like, except for my experience, just seeing it from the outside. So it's, it's definitely, I find, probably for a lot of people starting studios, that's, that's going to be a challenging, a challenging role to, like, to figure out, but definitely important. Yeah. Um, I see Tokyo Megaplex is around, and he said, I got, like, five questions. <laughs> So I don't know if you want to hop in and just ask uh, one or two. Yo, yeah. Can you hear me? Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. sweet. <clears throat> yeah. Um, so starting the studio thing has like definitely been something I've been sort of thinking about a bunch since I got into like freelancing and working full time and stuff. And I've like also thought like, you know, it's something that I want to do at some point, but like I want to pick up a bunch of experience before I jump into that and uh i've kind of like come with a bunch of questions along the way and um some of the stuff that is coming to mind is like you know i i definitely i have like kind of slack groups of people that i'll like work on little freelance projects with and i sort of get the idea of like coming together everyone doing freelance projects together and then eventually that just sort of can manifest into a studio if you if you you know make the right moves to make that happen um but you got to obviously like build a website and like, you know, have a name and be legit and all that stuff. And then the, the part that I get kind of confused with and the sort of questions come up with is like one, like to do that and to like start the studio and build stuff. It seems like you kind of have to like commit to doing that for a period of time and just like turning down these freelance projects that you might be getting. So like it's, kind of a question of like, is it worth that like, you know, time that you're not going to be freelancing to try to get that off the ground. And then once you do do that, there's a bunch of questions that I have, like um, how do you go about telling your clients, Hey, we're a studio now. So we're going to charge you, you know, like much bigger rates for these projects. uh, You know, when you're doing that, like to pay for all the overhead of, having a studio, even if it's just a, you know, people working remotely and stuff, it's like, you still have the, you got to pay the producers and it's like all this work to maintain. Um, and yeah, I guess that's, that's sort of the, the main first question that I have. 
Sure. So, um, so I think the number one thing in all of it um, is to is to be really clear on why you want to start a studio, um, and that's like I, I hear like those kind of questions a lot. And so, like, is it is it worth it? Well, if there's a real reason why you want to start a studio and you feel like that is the thing to do for you, that um, it's either just a burning desire or you can't get your next step of growth without it, then yes, it's worth it. If you're happy freelancing, maybe it, it's not. Um, and in terms of making the break, um, like my experience is particular, like I didn't start with sort of a bunch of partners that were like, okay, we're going to come together. Like it was clearly my company and I was hiring people and, and paying them. So it was a bit of a different experience, but <clears throat> I felt even in there and like it, it happened to me too, where I had to make a clean break where it's like, no, I don't freelance anymore. Um, I, I for sure don't go in the house anywhere anymore. Um, but even remote, like I don't, I don't freelance everything's through my company because or else you're undercutting yourself. It's like, well, why will I hire the company? And, and I think it's just like that, that kind of rebrand I was talking about where we're like, we're a creative studio, so we don't just do an edit. So it's to really like define, like, this, is, this is what it is now, and this is what it's about. Um, and I guess it's, it's a risk to, uh, to hope you can find the clients, but, um, and this is also where like everything is particular to people's experience. I was doing those turnkey projects um, for the advertising agencies. Um, and those were flat quotes. So it was a little easier to like fold those in to the, to the business because it wasn't like a day rate where they could be like, oh, well, the day rate was this and now it's this. Like for sure there was still some like nudging up the, great, the rates gradually, but that was easier. And I lost a bunch of clients that just needed a freelancer and I was just not doing what they needed anymore. And that's, that's, that's fine. Mm -hmm. um, cool. Yeah, that that's awesome. I, I have like a couple of questions to follow up with that. So one is like, uh, you said, obviously, you can't go in studio anymore once you sort of start the like legit business thing. So do you once you did that, did you just basically like, l completely like lose those clients where you were like, working in studio with them? Or did you maintain some kind of relationship where you could like, you know, bring in work to your studio through them or something like that? Um. There was, there was probably like, there's probably a phase at the very beginning, like before that kind of break that I was talking about where we were doing some kind of like, I guess what I would call like white, white label stuff, like they'd be overloaded. And we were basically like, you know, instead of getting two freelancers in, send it to us and we'll do the work, but we're still really under their brand. But we, we reached the point where like, especially with that kind of like doing more turnkey projects and, and pitching where it became like just a conflict of interest too, where we would be pitching against them on stuff or, or where it, it, it just didn't, didn't make sense. And also because we were trying to like raise our rates and they needed to make their profit margin and right. it just kind of didn't fit. That being said, I still work with production companies. A lot of times like live action production companies that, that don't do a lot of motion design and they'll get in like a, an animation job and we'll kind of partner on it. So that, 
that still happens, but there was definitely some like moments of just being like, no, I, I'm, I can't do that because, because mm-hmm. I have the company now. There's a few really tempting ones too that were like super tough, but the other thing too is that, which kind of kept me honest with it, it was I had employees. So like if, if, if I went off to try and freelance somewhere and do another project, I can't just kind of leave them in my house, like <laughs> right. or leave them in the office for two weeks while I was off doing something else would have been weird. So that kept me honest with keeping focused on developing it. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Um, I, I feel like for me, like as someone who's mainly freelancing in studios right now and like the idea of sort of at some point starting a studio and maybe this is like total hubris, but I feel like when I'm like in these studios and like, you know, working on these projects and things are going through the, the, the producers that are going to the agency, they're going to like, you know, later, like the people at the agency that are like the head people and then like going to the clients and then like, you know, the last day of the project, like there's that one guy who like hasn't seen the project the whole time who sees it at the end and then like, just like is like redo everything. And I just feel like when I'm there, especially as someone who's more on the technical side and like understands how this stuff is being built from the ground up. And I'm just like, man, like if I was talking directly to the client, I could do this so much more efficiently. Um, and I feel like that's like the main sort of motivation for doing more of like a studio thing and like sort of, you know, I don't know. There's not really a question there. That's just like something that I've like definitely been thinking about a bunch as I'm like trying to figure out this stuff. And I don't know if it really, after all that will even make sense for me to end up starting a studio or whatever. Cause I'm like, I'm just trying to balance all these different things and feel like figure out what, what makes the most sense. And freelancing is probably doing it fine for me right now. But, uh, and I also want to like do these other things as well. So it's like, just, yeah, I'm trying to navigate all that stuff, but, um, yeah, I don't know. Not a question, but that's, yeah. Uh, well, I mean, maybe I'll speak to that quickly, which is just to say like, Mm. Uh, I think that's an okay motivation, but it might be a lot to like, I don't know if that's going to like push you through starting a studio because there's so much to it and, and relationships with, with like your staff, with clients that just try to solve one problem with it might, might not be enough. Um, and I mean, I think we've all felt that efficiency thing. And I think once you get to like, kind of like move up and, and kind of peel back the layers and behind the curtain. Some stuff can be solved with efficiency, but there's a lot of stuff that you just don't see that is that way for a reason. And there's only, there's only so much that, that can be like, you can be proactive and, and head off problems, but there's no like eliminating that stuff ever. Yeah. So. Yeah, I've realized also that like thinking that I've been a bit naive and like come to realize like why agencies exist and why, you know, all these things exist. And like when I am working at these studios, it's like, you know, part of the selling point of them is like, well, we have all these flame suites and we invite these clients to come sit down and be really comfortable in these flame suites and that makes them happy and and all this like weird stuff that you would think like, well, if we can do it for cheaper, why wouldn't they just hire us? But it's like, there's, there's a Mm -hmm. lot more to it than that that I'm like realizing as I'm, you know, working more and freelancing and and doing a lot of stuff, but yeah, cool. Thanks, man. One, one thing that I like experienced when I was in house, uh, 
at a place was like we'd get certain briefs and we essentially had an internal agency and I'm like, Oh, I can bang out this edit in like a day. No problem. And like ship it off. And then like, I would get the creative director would get like mad because it was almost, I was delivering too fast. And now that expectation was that we could turn it around so quick. Uh, so I think a lot of that has to do too with like the client relations and management and, you know, I don't know. There's a lot of layers in there, but I think like the efficiency thing, I like us as artists always can see like, Oh, I can do that. No problem. But like to really look at the large scope of it and like how the client or how the studio or whoever wants to like come across to the client, like, yeah, you could do it right away, but then that client's going to now expect that, they can just hit you up and you can turn around a project for them immediately. And I don't know, Noah, do you run into that stuff at all? Like kind of the balance? No, I mean, I think, I think for me, the number one thing that I come to understand is really just an empathy thing that like we're all in this field because we have these visual imaginations and these problem solving skill sets for the most part, you know, there's this thing that has to be made and we can kind of picture it in our heads and, and abstract all the steps to get from A to Z. The client doesn't have that. So we try our best with animatics and stuff, but some of those last minute changes just come down to like, they don't quite have the same visual imagination that we do. And I, I come to just have empathy for that and just kind of say like, in, in some ways that's a good thing or else they would just do it themselves you know mm -hmm. but then i also have come to learn the more i talk to marketing directors is is they have marketing goals like so we might hit the creative goal for a project but if if up the ladder someone in the corporate head office is like you know what our new focus group research says that you know even though this spot is bang on for 18 to 35 year old males our research shows that this product is really going to be a hit with, with women 40 and over. It, you know, before that spot hits the air, they're going to try and pivot and mm -hmm. change that spot to whatever they think. So I feel like those are a lot of the concerns that, that, come, that come in and like, you know, for sure you would think that hopefully that would all be done before you even start and everything lined up. But, just the reality of all those moving parts. It's, it's, uh, it doesn't always work that way. So I, uh, I've come to learn to just be like super proactive and you can't give up on trying to keep things on track. Cause that's, that's just chaos, but to also just, just have empathy and, and understand that part of that is just because they, they have concerns that are just different and they're in a different environment and they're, they're doing their best with trying to trying to navigate that. Mm -hmm. um, I just saw, well, Jordan had to leave the meeting. He said he had to go, but he had put something in the chat, a question for you, which I think kind of transitions well from this topic, but he wants to hear more about your balance of like, you know, quote unquote, on the box work versus directing, producing, business running, sales, etc. Um, and to kind of piggyback off that, Teddy also asked, do you guys have a rep or anyone helping with biz dev? So, so that's fluctuated a lot, um, over the years. So 
those first two years, I was very, very on the box. And then it, it transitioned to less and less um, on the box work till by the time I did the, the pivot, part of my, my reason to do that was partially to, uh, to get back on the box. But um, I also just want to say that, I, um, especially with some of like the, the bricklayer versus not bricklayer talk, I tend to not look at it like, as like a, a line in the sand. So it's a bit of a, a continuum um, in that I'm back more on the box now, but I'm doing different things on the box than I was doing then. But um, yeah, for sure. By the time like Simon was was a partner, I was almost not on the box. I was really doing like some style frames, a little polish here and there, but a lot of sales, a lot of just like concepts and storyboards. Um, but always with lots of exceptions in a small studio. Like we would always get jammed up and I would roll up my sleeves. Um, and then, and then now, I, now I'm more on the box and to the rep thing. Um, that was also, we put on a rep um, the year that, uh, that Simon was with us. Um, uh, should I get into reps? Is that a question people want yeah, to Yeah, I mean, like, sure. <laughs> I think, you know, that's, it's a question that I've seen pop up in a lot of different slacks and like, how do you handle reps? What's like a good percentage? What's too much? Is it worth it? Like, so for me, um, I would say it wasn't worth it for a few reasons. Um, I kind of feel like a rep is super worth it when you've got your full sales pipeline really humming, you've done as much as you can do. And then you need someone else who's like, gonna push you into new markets. When I looked at what the rep was costing us at the end of the day, um, I, I thought that if I took that money and I just got on a plane myself to like meet people in different places, um, it would be money better spent. Um, not that, that I thought I was a better salesperson than the rep, but it was just a little more like if, if I'm doing it, even if nothing lands right away, I'm really building up those relationships in my, in those markets, it's building value that, that I keep. Um, and, uh, and also what a lot of people don't realize is to be effective, you have to give them a lot of ammunition. Like it's not taking any work off of you because they need to keep approaching like they're sort of like Rolodex with like, Hey, check out this new thing that this studio did check out this new hotspot that they did to like be able to like keep opening that door. Um, and so uh, when we brought on a rep, like a lot of people, I probably mistakenly figured that, oh, this will take a lot of sales off my shoulder. Um, but in the end, it just pivoted it to a different kind of work. Um, so I would maybe bring on a rep again, but if I did, I would be more cognizant of where I needed to be what I had to be able to provide them for that to really be successful. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Teddy's just chiming in on the chat too. Maybe it's better for like larger organizations compared to maybe a small studio or, um, and it's obviously important if you don't vibe with the rep, like they're not going to probably rep you as well or, you know, um, yeah. They, they, they all have their specialties too. Like, I think I made a bit of a 
strategic terror and that we brought on a rep who's like specialized in the U.S. broadcast space. It's like more in Canada, so we could like try and get in there. Um, but I think that was it was it was too too big of a leap to where like I probably should have just maybe got a rep in like the U.S. video game space and not try to like change verticals and mm-hmm. and geography or. Um, Liam put something in the chat saying that you guys have talked about this in the past, but what, what's your kind of hour, like your business hours schedule looking like these days? Are you working all the time? Do you have specific office hours? And, um, maybe you could elaborate a little bit on that. Um, so, um, definitely that year with uh, Simon as partner. I think Simon can attest that we were working a lot of hours. Um, and with the office, a lot of times it was working like, you know, like not going home, right? You just go through because everyone's in the office, employees are there. Um, and that was that was definitely, definitely rough. Um, and like through the entire history of having the company, I mean, it's never been 40 hour work weeks because I'm always wearing multiple hats, you know, um, but, but that was definitely like a, a extreme amount of, of time. And, and now with the pivot, um, it, it's definitely less, less time just cause there's like less, less admin without the physical infrastructure. But for me, one of the big reasons, um, to do it too with a kid is just, I, I work kind of nine to five and then at five, I stop and do family, you know, kid supper, bath time, bedtime. And then usually at seven, I'll start working again and go to like, you know, 10 or 11, uh, go to sleep. It's, it's maybe not ideal, but for me, it doesn't feel too, too punishing. Like I'm not up till two in the morning, very, very frequently. Um, and so that's kind of my, my routine now. Do you do specific tasks at like certain parts of the day? Like, do you save you know, certain creative work or if you're doing style frames or anything like that for later, do you do that early or anything like that? Um, a lot really depends on what, what's going on. I want to try and get better, better with that. A lot of times the creative stuff gets pushed into the evenings because yeah. generally the clients are around more nine to five and that's when I get the most um, emails and, and stuff and have to do the most kind of producery things. Although mm-hmm. I would actually rather do the creative stuff when I'm like, the most awake and the most most alert. So I'm that try and shift it. But um, the one thing with a small studio and and how we've kind of had some bigger projects is we go through so many phases of where the project is is at that it, it changes quite a bit. Like you know sometimes I'll be heavy in like a writing and storyboard phase and then sometimes we'll be heavy in like a you know animation and production so i think it's it really ebbs and flows to what i'm doing when with sort of where the various projects are at cool um i'm just monitoring the chat um and olive has a question about when you hire subcontractors or staff how much would you generally buff or like add a buffer above their rate to your client um, your fee for project management and whatnot. 
Um, well, I mean, I guess I guess staff is is it is a bit different, but I mean, um, at the end of the day, it's just all like project uh, budgeting. Um, so this is definitely something I've learned along the way. Like when I started, I was not good at this. Um, and there was no resources like uh, like people who are thinking of doing this. Yeah, check out think. Um, and, uh, I think the earlier stuff when the future was called the school is is good about this. But, um, but so basically, I, I budget out all the tasks on the project with like a day rate to like get my base my base budget. But that that includes like producing project management. So it's not like. Uh, the freelancer day rate plus a percentage for project management. It's whoever's doing the project management, it's going to take them this amount of time, and this is their rate plus whatever costs. And then, so then that's my my project budget. And then there's the profit margin that that gets added on top of that. Um, and honestly, at the beginning, I really made a big mistake of not understanding overhead and that overhead is not your profit. And that like, you know, even when you're running a low overhead business, software, updating computers, accounting, all that stuff, like that's that's overhead and that's gotta be baked into sort of the, the hourly that, that you're billing out at. And profit margin is really profit that you can then choose to like go on a vacation or reinvest it in the studio. So just to make sure that's, that's built into the budget. Do you, are you, uh, I should say, are you a fan of putting a line item in for profit or do you leave that out? So all the budgets are for us internal. Um, I've really moved towards, so there's, there's a lot of talk about value-based pricing, um, which I, I do a like sort of a multiplier, which is really just considering the the factors involved in the project, which is like um, I think I maybe mentioned this on the MBA Slack, like I don't necessarily look at it like this is a valuable project to the client. So I'm gonna charge them way more, but it's more a question also of like, okay, if this is more important to them, there's gonna be more eyes on this, there's gonna be more revisions, more like it, it will be more work too. Mm-hmm. If it's higher value, it just almost always works out that way. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, at, at the end of the day, my quotes are almost always just more of a scope of work and defining what you're getting at. But then it just says the price is as much total. And I don't usually get pushback on that. Um, at the end of the day, that's what they care about. I, if you're doing flat quotes, I need this thing. How much is it going to cost me? And, uh, and so all that is kind of okay to the client. And so they can nitpick on, on the various details. Mm-hmm. So with your flat quote, I mean, do you, do you just deliver a number or do you like break the project down at all? Like, uh, like in phases or anything like that? Um, so, so my quote is usually like a description, which is kind of like scope of work and just like, what's this project gonna be? Uh, can I usually go into process? So just like what they can expect in terms of kind of like milestones and, and sign-offs. Um, then will be like the, the line items if there are any 
if there are, usually it's pretty minimal. Like sometimes if there's version in other languages, that'll be separate from the main project. But, um, and like kind of, uh, and then and then there'll be payment terms. So, so like to, to circle back to the question, usually it's just 50% deposit, 50% net 30 on completion. Um, but for longer, more complicated projects, there will be milestone based payments. Um, and that's usually decided on a case by case mm -hmm. basis on like what makes sense, where the milestones are and things like that. Cool. Yeah. I think there's, uh, not, I wouldn't say debate, but there's always a lot of discussion around like, um, payment milestones and whatnot and deposits and all that. But it's good to hear that you even, you know, someone with, your experience, it's still case by case basis. You really need to, um, you know, weigh the project or the client or, you know, whatnot. Um, with that being said too, in terms of your client base, do you have, do you have a lot of repeat clients? Do you go after a lot of new business? So, um, like that's one thing that that's come up a lot. When I talk about starting a studio, people are like, how do I get clients? You know, and, and mm -hmm. a lot of, um, it's basically been networking and cold emails all the way through. Um, but we have had very good client retention. Um, and, and definitely when I started the studio, there was really like two things that I focused on. One was the overall client experience. I don't know where I heard it, but it stuck with me that like big brands, when they're selling a product, you're just buying the product, but it's like, yeah, I mean, I think the classic example is like McDonald's from like the first time you see the commercial till you like walk in to the McDonald's location until you order your burger and get your happy meal. Like all those steps are, are really what people are paying for, not just the burger. Um, so I really was like conscious of, of providing a good client experience, understanding that these people are like stressed out and busy and trying to make sure that they really felt taken care of. So we had a lot of repeats. So I feel like the cold outreach even though there's a lot of rejection, I look at it like I'm selling a really big ticket item. <clears throat> and that big ticket item is you're going to work with us for the next five years over like maybe five to 10 projects a year. So there's a lot, a lot of rejection, but if I just get a couple new clients every year, that's really growing, growing the company. Hmm. So like, you know, sometimes it clicks, sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes whatever happens, for sure there's one-offs, but by and large, it's been a lot of repeat. And like, not to necessarily get into the nitty gritty details about it, but like in a cold email, what, you know, what are, what's the content there? Are you just saying like, hey, this is what we do. Here we are, we're in Montreal. Like, or do you have a specific tactic or are you trying to hit a specific division of business or, uh, or contact there or whatnot? Um, so, I mean, a lot of the stuff, like the basics of it, but, but the school of motion freelance was manifest. It was a pretty good, like basic structure. Else. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and when I'm doing them, a lot of times I'm just trying to like leverage what we've done in, in the past, um, and draw some connection to what this person is doing now. And to show that I understand their business and that I'm aware of what they're doing and that it's not like a random email. So like some of the really easy ones is like, 
competitors of your clients and just be like, oh, your competitor is using us. Do you want to chat and find out uh, what we do? Um, and, and just try to like, like leverage in the, in, in like just find some kind of, some kind of connection as a way in. And, and then like, you know, nine, nine times out of 10 or, or even more, they, they don't have a need right now or they have a good, someone they're happy with working with. And sometimes it's a really long process of like six months to, to a year to more. I did a project last year where I think I first talked to the client three years and a bit before finally getting a project with them. And it was really just like getting that first meeting. For me, that's, that's a really big thing is like, there's, there's so many emails and, and just, information bombarding you but if i've met you in person people have a good memory usually for people they, they've met in person so as to get that meeting and then it was just every six months checking with them and until finally circumstances worked out that they had a need and then i was the person they kind of felt comfortable with because we've been chatting on and off for the past few years so you send you, you do quite a bit of follow-ups uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, honestly, so in terms of like looking back of the nine years, one of my biggest problems that I've always been trying to solve with a small studio um, is that when things are a little slower, I'll be like follow ups and be the, uh, the outreach. And then when we get really busy, I'll let that slide. And that's actually not good um, because you need to do business like far out before before you need it so i've been good and bad with uh, ups <laughs> over the years and uh in terms of things that i, I feel like maybe held us back that i could have done better is i think if i would have been more consistent uh with follow-ups i think that i could have seen better returns on some of the stuff i've done <laughs> yeah and shane had just asked in the chat who is the person you try to reach when you're cold emailing these companies and Teddy's kind of responding a little bit in there too, like producers, executive producers, supervisors and, and whatnot. Is there, would you agree with that? Um, well, I guess it depends if you're a studio or a freelancer. So um, as a studio, um, so because of that repeat thing, I'm definitely targeting companies that I feel like uh, can give us, repeat projects over a number of years so like for example i'm not super focused on startups because they'll do their like one big launch video and then you know a lot of times that's it right mm -hmm. so so i so i've been looking at direct to client places that do a lot of videos and agencies so with direct client it's usually marketing director or sometimes that role if they have different brands it's called brand manager or someone in that role mm -hmm. Um, and then agencies will usually be creative director, sometimes producer. So those are those are like the two big ones. I think. I think yeah, for sure. If you're uh, if you're a freelancer, you can kind of go more to like producer, art director. Mm-hmm. Cool. Uh, I think I missed, it looks like in the chat, I missed a, a line from Tokyo who had another question about training employees. 
Yeah. So you said you're now you are like all freelance people mm-hmm. for, as far as the creatives. Um, so, but, but you had like full-time employees in the past and yeah. Yeah. what was sort of, I'm just curious what your thoughts were on training employees. Cause obviously if you're going to keep them around for a long time, it's, it's would be well worth the investments, but that all kind of depends. And I would assume also like, it depends whether you're in like a more sort of remote area where it makes more sense to have longer term employees or like a very high talent area where you're probably doing more freelance stuff, like a bigger city or something. Um, Cause sort of one idea that I have had lately, uh, which is kind of like a, a, maybe like a half measure to like doing a studio thing is just for when I'm doing like lots of freelance projects at home, and I have like multiple machines here thinking of bringing in friends or like, for example, um, I know a bunch of uh, kids who are talented who just graduated school, but like can't like fully handle some of the projects that I'm coming on. And like, I would want to sort of train them, but also it wouldn't necessarily like make sense to train someone who I'm just going to like, you know, have like freelancing for me for a short period of time or whatever. Um, so yeah, I don't know. It's just something I've been thinking about. So I'm curious sort of what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, it's definitely an investment. Um, and like any investment, there's a risk, right? The person could leave. So uh, like, for example, our, the second employee was, was started off as an intern who we trained and then he was staff as a junior and stayed with us for five, five years or so, six years. Um, and then I've, I brought people on at various paces and, and trained them. Um, I, th- I think if you're going to have staff, it's you you have to do it. And that's like when you look at the the differences and why do one thing or the other. Like the whole point of having staff is to grow and evolve as a team and to have some kind of permanence to that structure. So you, you definitely need to to train people. Uh, but you're talking about what you're doing now, um, like bringing freelancers. So one, one thing that made my pivot, uh, kind of work is definitely as things evolved and we got better projects in the studio. There's definitely a kind of project that I just can't do, do anymore with this structure that needs juniors. Cause I, I can't supervise people in that way with, with what, with what we're doing. So like the pivot to the production model <clears throat> definitely meant again kind of making a cut off of like I can't take on those projects anymore. I'm kind of pushing myself to only do stuff that's at like a certain level of complexity where the budget makes sense and I can hire um, you know, like experienced freelancers, middle freelancers. Although I think for really repetitive stuff, you could easily give juniors a shot, you know, and just be like I'm going to show you how to do like these five tasks to do with modeling in C4D. Now I have like three weeks of you cleaning up these CAD models. You know, like that's always the kind of stuff we give to, to interns. And I think we can manage that. That's not a huge uh, time investment, but it's still giving them value of like, you know, just learning the stuff. It's, I, I feel like really juniors, it can work because you don't have to like, you can show them little things and it's a big leap for them. And then you can have more senior people in the middle it gets quite complicated <clears throat> if it's not going to be a genuine investment in really starting a studio and really training them 
and really having them move with you. So with you, with you running a studio now consisting, it, how do you classify yourself? Like virtual studio, remote studio, something like that? I, I, personally, I, I prefer to say production company. Okay. Because, like I say, when I went into these live action production companies, I mean, they have offices, but usually it's like two producers, two line producers, and maybe they have a staff editor that just like pump out you know, like dailies mm-hmm. clients, but they they don't have all the people that a motion studio does. They run it really like that. And if, if there's a lot more desks, it really is freelancers coming in. So I really look at it as the production um, company model. But I would say remote. I don't like virtual because I don't think it's virtual. I think it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's a studio, you know, and especially, I don't know, to me, it just seems old fashioned corny, you know, like it's on the computer, it's virtual. Yeah, totally. like, so I guess remote would be accurate. Um, how do you go about finding your artists and your talent that help accomplish these jobs? Do you have a, a network, which I'm sure you do after nine years, but if all those people are tied up, do you have like a vetting process or anything like that? A big part of my vetting process is the MDA and the MoGraph Slack. <laughs> uh, to, to be honest though, like, uh, yeah, so, some of it is the freelancers that we kind of met and established um, before so those people came along. Um, for new people, there's a lot of that. I tend not to post and say, like, just send me your reel. Um, just because of, like, uh, you never quite know what you're going to get. But right. one thing I find cool about being active in these slacks, you can really get a sense of, like, who knows what, because people are sharing their knowledge. Mm-hmm. How people carry themselves, like, you you know, nothing online is 100% true. You get a sense of, like, who's patient, who's not, whatever. Uh, and, and then, so I, I tend to approach people a lot. Nice. So I'd say it's, like, still probably 75% is past contacts, but there's been a good 25% that's been new people a lot through, yeah, through those kind of communities. Nice. Now... To put you on the spot, have you, and I'm sure you have over the nine years, have you gotten burned on anything like that? Like, oh, yeah. you hire on someone, they just can't do it. And how did you handle that? Uh, we, I mean, we've, we've hired people that we had to fire after two or three weeks. Um, I think freelancers, it's a little easier. You just kind of phase them out of a project and not uh, call them back. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm pretty careful too. Like I try and I try and bring someone in like on a smaller project that's less intense deadlines the first time I work with them and and uh, and build. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I mean, I don't know about burned because I don't know that it was intentional uh right. but we definitely had people that we've had to let go or yeah let's see um if anyone else joining the call has a question feel free to plop it in the chat we're just uh we're just over the hour mark here so well, did I get it right, Simon? Sorry to 
<laughs> Thumbs up. <laughs> um, yeah, well, you know, we're just passing the hour mark now. So um, to respect your time as well, we'll start wrapping this up. Um, but just monitoring the chat here too. Teddy is also saying he always has a, a deal memo in place, like an independent contractor agreement for hiring. Um, Olive has another quick question about international clients and it, have you dealt with them and what's kind of the best way to deal with crazy time zones? Um, yeah, yeah, we do. So just being in Montreal, which is like a French uh, speaking province, <clears throat> we tend to get clients from uh, France also. Hmm. Just that kind of link. Um, I've had a couple clients from Australia as well. <clears throat> um, and what's, you know, well, Australia is a pretty big time difference. It's it's not so bad because I think like my nighttime is there morning the next day almost. Mm -hmm. So yeah, but a lot of it is just um, it, it just communication and like really deciding when those check-ins will be um, and when those those touch points will be. So someone a client in the same time zone, we might just leave it a bit a bit more loose. Like okay, here's the video. Call me if you. Any questions or concerns, or else just email me feedback. Whereas, if it's another time zone, it will be a little more structured. Like, here's the version. Let's have a call at this time because it's like one kind of overlap window, um, and then take it from there. <clears throat> and, and and now just it's only gotten easier with like Frame IO, Slack, et cetera, et cetera, to, to manage that stuff. Yeah, there's a ton of collaboration feedback tools now that really help. I mean, it's it's easier than ever to work with people all around the world, you know, hence all these slacks and stuff like that. It's, it's been great for, you know, speaking personally and meeting new artists and, and networking with all you guys. Um, one, all right, let's do two more questions here. Tokyo's got another question about juniors versus seniors versus mids. I don't know if you want to ask that one. Yeah, I pretty much wrote the whole thing out. But when you were talking about juniors and maybe like giving them more repetitive tasks and things like that, um, I'm just kind of curious, like in your sort of arsenal of like freelancers or employees or whatever, like what to you constitutes like a junior versus a mid versus a senior, whether it's like, is it experience strictly or is it like, you know, because I feel like there are definitely people who are more junior who are like very capable of figuring things out and not necessarily having to be managed as much. But then if you do that, do you consider them to be like an A versus a B tier junior or do you like, you know, how do you just go about all that stuff? Um, yeah. I mean, I, when I say junior mids, I and mean, I think there's some things that can only come with experience, but I, I basically use those terms to mean like someone's capabilities. So like, you know, someone could be like a, I don't know, have worked for a lot of years, but still be a mid, or someone could work for a lot of years and still be a junior. But one thing that I'm really focused on now with the remote thing is I find those distinctions don't really cover that. Everyone has different, like even within a 3D generalist, you know, someone will be like, one person will be really good at like solving really complex, like, like brain buster problems. And another person would be like an amazing texture painter. And one person would be like super creative. And another person might be like mm -hmm. a little less wild creatively, but like super organized. 
super organized. So I tend to think a lot of a lot of it in terms of like casting project <clears throat> now that I'm remote. So it's really like, what is this person good at with like all the various ins and outs of their skills and how will they fit in fit in on this uh, on this project? Does that yeah, so would you say then you sort of like just on a project by project basis are less thinking about like who's a I need a you know a mid or a, I need a senior or I just need someone who fits this profile who's the best person for that? Yeah, and I mean obviously the mid junior senior are loose buckets and also like has to do with their rates. You kind of have to like fit that in somewhere for your for your budgeting. Um but yeah, where I think you have to be careful though um, is one thing that um, has come up over the years too, besides the like, client experience, is I've tried to make the creative stuff very creative, but everything else like very, very uh, systematized. And if you manage to find that one or two like exceptional juniors that you can pay a junior rate, but have like mid-level creativity, that's not necessarily repetitive. <clears throat> So if you start to build a business model around that, you're going to hit a point where that causes you problems because then you can't always pull off that level of project at that budget. So I do think as much as you you cast people for who they're good at, and if you find someone that you can really give a shot and can can uh, can budge above their weight, it, it's not a business model to budget around that. That can be very dangerous. So I still think that you do have to keep those like general rule of thumbs of what can be expected of a mid <clears throat> roughly what they have to be paid when you look at it. consistently delivering for clients within sort of budget ranges time and time again. Right. And then you sort of talked about this a bit, but so like just to follow that up when you're doing the budget, uh, you said it's like, you do the the rate for the artist plus like your profit and your overhead or whatever. Yeah. Um, or, or do you just say like, okay, yeah, this is like going to take three people. So I'm going to charge, you know, a thousand dollars per day per person or, or like what? Yeah. So like, like in terms of keeping the, the budgets, not person specific. And to me, that's part of being stupid is to give someone a budget, but it's not contingent on any one person being available. So my budgets are based on certain rates that I know reliably i can get someone of that skill set to do not anyone's specific rate and then once <clears throat> once i win the job then i'm looking to, to fill those rules and you know i mean like then there's the give and take of like you know if if i if i find that person that's just amazing um and they charge a bit more a lot of times it works out in the end because they can do it faster so what i budgeted per day but you know, worst case scenario, I eat into my profit margin a bit, but I get someone really senior and they they do a great job and it's less stressful and so I get a few percent less profit and sure, whatever, you know. Mm -hmm. Cool. That, yeah, that's smart. That's super helpful. Thank you. No um, cool. Well, just wrapping up here, I thought it might be fun for you just to like maybe throw out three. We'll do like a lightning round type thing. Um, but maybe like your top three tips for that freelance artist. And uh, yeah, I don't know if you 
have anything off the top of your head that you can give to the people listening? Ooh, that's, that's tricky. And I feel like there was something on Twitter where people got in trouble for like, um, <laughs> I, I think, so for me personally, and I don't know how this scales, but like people always say this, but it's communication. Like I don't want surprises ever. And I've like part of that client experience is we've, we've definitely over the years, I think built a reputation as a very reliable studio with deadlines. So it's like, if you have any kind of problem, let me know in advance and I am there to help you solve it. But don't let me know at the last minute. Give me time to, uh, to help you. So it's really like, just be a, be a good communicator. Um, and uh, I, I think uh, I, I think it goes with that organization thing too, of just like, you know, like, of course, we all want people who are like amazing designers and amazing technical problem solvers, but you know, on any given day, people, people give it their best, you get what you can. So I say like, just make sure the simple things that anybody can do right, you, you don't slack on those. Good organization, communication, and just, you know, being a pleasant person to, to work with. I like it. None of that is tech. Dude, like for the people listening, you know, like I just feel like so many times it's like, oh, I need to learn this plugin or I need to learn this technique in Houdini or this, that, and the other. And it's like, I don't know. It just seems like if you're a good communicator, you're organized, you're a nice person willing to learn and all that, like that goes so far too. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to generalize it. I mean, like if you want to work with specifically, like I have a pipeline um, and I, because of that, thing of being a studio and not being dependent on any one artist like um i i'm having multiple people working on projects you you know like if you're like i only use 3ds max i'm probably not gonna hire you you know i mean unless it's just modeling a hard surface thing and you can give us the obg or whatever like you know but i mean i think what tools are in the the, the mograph pipeline are, are like well established now so mm-hmm yeah, I, maybe we we should do a follow-up call with you too just to get more into the details of like what your pipelines look like and, you know, and do another kind of general Q&A because I think there's a lot of a lot of stuff that's come up too that we could probably dive a little deeper into. Um, but just to kind of round it out too, like do you have uh, three tips for small studio owners or like people maybe wanting to transition? I know we just did a whole show pretty much on this, but your top three. Uh, sure. I'll, I'll, I'll try and just preface this by saying though, like, uh, when I started like so many, I just made so many mistakes and like blundered ahead. So, so much of this is like hindsight and it feels almost hypocritical because I, I just kind of went for it. And honestly, if I, if I really knew, if, if, if RevThink and the future and all that stuff had been around then, I might have psyched myself out of actually doing it if I really had understood uh, what was involved. But I will give three tips in retrospect. So, um, I think number one is, is just be aware of like 
a lot of times as motion designers focused on doing the work um, and how more and more business stuff is come in but i think there's a whole other aspect of running a studio which is managing people and relationships um and i think you have to be very aware uh, before you get in to to try and understand as much as much about that as possible and just what that responsibility is like when when people and sometimes even people with families are responsible or you're, they're looking at you for, for their paycheck and also just for you know, it, it's their day in and day out work, and, and you know they might have like big traumatic events in their life, and you're you're going to be part of that now, um, which is it it's an amazing part of running a studio, but it's also daunting. So you know, be be ready for that, and and I think it's just really be clear on why you're doing it, and give yourself a mission statement, and check in with yourself uh, frequently because. Through, through all the pivots uh, that I've done, I think what, what's helped me stay on track is is checking in with like, why am I doing this? What what did I set to uh, to accomplish? Um, is it hitting those goals? And like I mentioned, really big moments of decisions because that's what comes up in the narrative. But you are bombarded when you're running a studio with so many decisions every single day about like in, insurance coverage. This product, you, you can't even imagine. I think if you don't have like a strong compass, it, it's hard to, it's, it's very easy to like get distracted and just focus. So to really have a clear mission statement. Um, and then I think the last which kind of comes from that is listen to everyone's stories, like, like me and, and that for best practices. But I think there's a lot of people out there now telling you like, you must do it this way. Some of that because people have courses to sell or for whatever reason. But I, I think that, uh, listen to best practices, but at the end of the day, if you're gonna make that leap of faith, you have to trust your gut and trust to do it your own way for what, for what you need to get out of it. I love it. Yes, there's a lot of stuff out there saying you need to run your business this way or that way, but if it doesn't resonate with you and you don't feel comfortable doing it, in theory, sure, like it might work, but you're never going to be 100% sold on it. Yeah, and like, I, I mean, I don't know. I, I feel like being in a small market, I've always been a little bit on the outside of the mainstream of the industry and kind of muddled along, and so that's, that's my perspective, and I, I won't name names, but like when I did the pivot to like uh, the production model and wanting to have a little more family time, I had like people experience it street saying, "Oh, you're giving up," like you know, a different kind of maybe not positive perspectives on it. But at the end of the day, I'm doing it for me and whatever. Yeah, I, th I think I think it's even though it seems selfish when it's a company, if you're going to do it and run it and be that engaged, it's it's always got to be engaging for you, or else there's going to be a problem. Mm -hmm. Well, hey, I just want to thank you very much for coming on and sharing your knowledge, and um, I think a lot of people are going to get value out of this, and you know, with you sharing your experiences and and kind of everything that you've done, I think it's going to really, you know, help out and everyone who's listened 
uh, to this and, and joined in and just want to give you a big shout out too about being so active on a bunch of the motion design slacks and always being there to kind of like answer questions. I know you've probably helped a ton of people. You've answered questions for myself. That's been very helpful. And, you know, so I think this community is definitely grateful for your presence in those platforms for sure. So thanks for doing that. My um, pleasure. And to kind of piggyback off that, um, you'd mentioned that there, you've started kind of a small private group on the MBA. Yeah. yeah. Thanks for reminding me. So um, it kind of came up in the MBA Slack, but um, we wanted to start, I guess it's kind of like a mentorship group but where we're kind of helping each other for people that are starting at a small studio. Um, and there's going to be a couple people in the group who are like have done it for a while and also some people uh, starting out. And so you can, uh, you can just email uh, Noah at handmadecreative.ca if you're interested. And we're going to just try and find a time one to, to get together maybe once a month and kind of like answer each other's questions for each other. Um, but for it to be meaningful, I'm going to kind of uh, cap it maybe 10 or 15 people. <clears throat> and just for it to work well is what it's intended to be. You have to either have started a small studio working like taking very concrete steps to doing it just so that we have a group that's that's really engaged with, with that process um and those challenges uh, and uh awesome we already have a few people but i'm just who else might be interested and then we're going to start it up probably in the next couple of weeks trying to organize our first meeting excellent nice well good luck with getting that off the ground and we'd love to have you back on and follow up on that, but also kind of open up another Q and a for uh, people to come in and, and ask their questions. So um, again, thank you very much for your time. And I know you're a busy guy, so uh, appreciate it. Um, I will put the, I took some notes and stuff throughout the call and I will post that kind of show notes with uh, the audio recording as soon as uh, I can get that up. Um, but a couple quick links just to share. Um, I use Wave apps for invoicing and stuff like that. And they were just acquired by H&R Block, which is pretty interesting. Uh, Wave apps is a free service. And there's been a lot of questions regarding whether or not they're actually going to stay free now that they got bought. And there's a kind of a, a frequently asked question blog that they did about that um, saying that they will stay free. So um, anyway, check that out uh, in the, in the notes. I'll put the, um, let me grab the link and just share it in the chat right now. Um, and then also a past guest, Tyler Bay uh, has a new Houdini course out called Vex Foundations, and he gave Monday meeting attendees and listeners a discount code for 25% off. So if you go to the link, he started a new uh, site called cgforge.com. So cgforge.com. If you put in Monday Vex, you'll get 25% off that course. So check that out. Um, and I'll also link up Hugo's desk too. He's like, that uh, is a really good resource and he puts out some great videos and tutorials and whatnot. So 
thanks for uh, bringing that one to the table today. Um, but anyway, uh, again, we appreciate everyone joining us and listening to these meetings online. Uh, if you have any questions or comments or suggestions for guests or presentations or whatnot, um, hit us up, info at mondaymeeting.org, or you can find us on Instagram or Twitter um, and any of the kind of motion slacks that are out there. So um, again, appreciate Noah's time. Thank you very much. And we will see you guys next week. Peace.